Daniel chapter 8, Daniel's second vision, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read all the way to verse 14. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel. After the one that appeared to me the first time, I saw in the vision. And it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulei. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram and had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very strong, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable horns came up toward the four winds of heaven. And one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down because of transgression. An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast down, he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for two thousand three hundred days then the sanctuary will be cleansed it's important that you remember a couple of things before we begin our study everything that the bible says about the past is true Everything that the Bible says about the future is true. And everything that the Bible says about you is true. 
And so as we look at this passage and we think about what it's saying, we also have to come to grips about what it means and what it means to you. The chapter can be divided into seven sections. I'm going to briefly give them to you so that you can orient in the chapter because when we come back and we visit this chapter after Christmas, it's going to be very, very important that you understand the connection between the first part of the chapter and the second part of the chapter. So the chapter is divided into seven sections. Number one, the setting, the time, and the place of the vision in verses one and two. Number two, the historical background of the vision. The contest between the ram and the goat in verses 3 through 8. And then the main theme of the vision. It's the revelation of a little horn who I believe is a servant of Satan in verses 9 through 14. Later, we're going to see the theophany and ministry of Gabriel, the dating of the vision, and we're going to talk more about the 2300 days. Then number five, the revelation and interpretation of the background portion of the vision, which appears in verses 20 through 22. Number six, the revelation and interpretation of this future king with the fierce or bold or impudent features is going to be talked about in verses 23 through 26. And number seven, the personal testimony of Daniel, his illness and perplexity, and the fact that, quote unquote, none understood it in verse 27. So in this message, our focus is going to be on these first three sections. Later, we're going to look at the four sections. So we begin with the strong ram with the two horns. Look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. This is Daniel's second vision. The first vision took place in chapter 7. And we sometimes forget in the excitement and mystery of predictive prophecy the explicit meaning and purpose of the vision. Like all of us, Daniel needs hope as he trusts God to make good his promises. And so for a moment, you should pause in the text and remind yourself, the Bible is written in order to give me hope, hope in pain, hope in heartache, hope in affliction. If I were to ask each and every one of you, which would you rather know, the past or the future? Almost invariably, all of you would say the future. I want to know about the future. I want to know about what the future holds. I want to know what the future means. And I want to know what it means to me. And then I would ask you the question, why? Why do you want to know the future? Because deep in your heart, you're thinking, if I could only know the future, I could change the future. Because that's what you know about the past. You think about the things that have happened to you in the past, the decisions that have been made and the decisions that have gone wrong and the hurt that has been heaped up inside of your heart and you would hope that you could change the future if you knew the future. 
Now I want to remind you of what I've already told you. Everything that the Bible says about the past is true. Everything that the Bible says about the future is true. All of life can be widely divided into two different categories. The things that we know for sure. And the things that we don't know for sure. And so as we continue in our study, I'm going to be drawing to your attention the things we know for sure and the things that still trouble us and that we wonder about. So Daniel needs hope. He's about 70 years old. Daniel is a captive and so are his people. But if we've learned anything from the book of Daniel thus far, this captivity will not last forever. When Daniel and his friends made their way out of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem in the few possessions that they had, one of them seems to be the scroll of Jeremiah, which Daniel poured over. And he knew from Jeremiah's scroll that one day the captivity would end and one day the children of Israel would return to Jerusalem. He knew that we live in a broken and an evil world. He knew that evil would increase and abound under the rule of a man and the God of this world. Timothy, in 2 Timothy, Paul talks about it as he gives some final instructions in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, that, that things are going to get difficult, are going to become difficult. Now, so the vision unfolds about two years after chapter 7, which places it between 553 and 551 BC. Now, again, the reason why I'm giving you the dates is so that you can begin to do the math. That Daniel's vision is literally taking place hundreds of years in advance of the, of the things that he sees. And we would do well to contrast and compare the two visions of chapter 7 and 8. What do they have in common? How are they different? I want to remind you that in chapter 7, the visions of the animals represent future world kingdoms. In chapter 8, it's exactly the same. The animals that you see in chapter 8 are future world kingdoms. In both chapters, we're dealing with predictive prophecy. I know that that's going to be a term that's unfamiliar to some of you, so in a moment I'm going to talk a little bit more about predictive prophecy. For now, I want you to think about predictive prophecy as history in advance. Examples include Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 where Isaiah received a vision in the year that King Uzziah died. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. It was predictive in nature. In both chapters, the revelation comes in the form of a vision. Remember in Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, we read, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown what will happen. As you meditate on that, he has shown 
what will happen, it should automatically strengthen your confidence that there's a God who reveals himself and reveals the future. G.B. Hardy wrote, quote, only the supernatural mind can have prior knowledge to the natural mind. If then the Bible has foreknowledge, historical and scientific, beyond the permutation of chance, it truly then bears the fingerprint of God, unquote. Why is that important to you? Because in the next few days or in the next few weeks, I guarantee you that if you are having proper conversations with your mother, with your father, with your brothers, with your sisters, with your family and your friends about the Bible, someone's going to say to you, how do you know it's true? How do you know this Bible is true? And you need to be able to say, I can give you at least three reasons right off the top of my head. Number one, the manuscript evidence and the authority that it brings. And number two, predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy. There's another one, and we'll get to that. But predictive prophecy is, quote, a miracle of knowledge a declaration, a description or representation of something future beyond the power of human sagicity, which means wisdom, to discern or calculate. And it is the highest evidence that can be given of supernatural communion with deity and of the truth of a revelation from God. Your Bible, unlike any other so-called holy book in all of the planet Earth, contains predictive prophecy. Statements that are made sometimes hundreds, thousands of years in advance. Genuine biblical prophecy must include proper timing, specific details, exact fulfillment, Predictive prophecy establishes the credibility of God and the authenticity of his word, the holy scriptures. And now we go back to what I said to you earlier. What the Bible says about the past is true. What the Bible says about the future is true. And if those two things are true, then what it says about you must also be true. So how are they different? In the first vision, Daniel appears to be asleep in chapter 7. In the second vision, Daniel happens to be awake in chapter 8. There's another difference that I want to draw to your attention. The vision in the seventh chapter is in the Aramaic language. But here, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, the text returns to the Hebrew language. And from chapter 8 all the way to the end of the book, it will remain in the Hebrew language. Why is that important to you? Remember what I've already told you, that the revelation that appears beginning in chapter 2 in the Aramaic language seems largely to be focused on the Gentile world. It means that it was a revelation and a communication that was supposed to be available to the entire world, but now the prophecy and the intensity 
and the focus of the prophecy beginning in Daniel chapter 8 as we march all the way to the end of the book, its focus is going to be the Jewish people and God's plan for the Jewish people. And so the times of the Gentiles began in about 606 BC with the Babylonian captivity, the subsequent destruction of the temple and desecration of that temple. And apparently it won't end until the second coming of Christ. An, an argument might be made that the times that have been designated and set aside for the Jews are closely associated with a future vision that Daniel's going to have in chapter 9 concerning the 70 weeks of Daniel. But I'll have more to say about those 70 weeks when we get to the ninth chapter. And like James, I want to be able to say, the Lord willing, the Lord willing. Because guess what? There is a future and it will unfold. But I can't be certain about my own. God hasn't promised me tomorrow. I've only been given today. And so I have to believe that God has spared my life and given me this day so that I could tell you about Jesus and about his plan for you. You know, in verse 2 it says, I, he, I saw in the vision, and it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which means a fortress, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulei, or Ulei. Scholars are divided whether Daniel is physically in Shushan or Susa, the citadel. The city is, by the way, some 230 miles east of Babylon and about 120 miles north of the Persian Gulf in what's now modern Iraq. Susa would later become one of the capital cities of the Persian Empire. It would also be the home of a future Bible character that most of you are familiar with. Her name is Queen Esther. This was her home city. It was also here that an archaeological team in 1901 dug up one of the most famous archaeological finds in all of modern history. It was the discovery of the stele or a large rock of the Code of Hammurabi. Most scholars believe that the Ulei River was a man-made canal that ran near the city. At this point, it's dried up. But again, we read in verse 3, Then I lifted up my eyes and I saw, and there standing beside the river, or this man-made canal, was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last were given the identity of this creature. So it's not a subject of speculation or argument. Later on in the verse, we're going to discover the identity of the ram in verse 20. All you have to do is just look a few verses ahead to verse 20, and you read, The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So there's no doubt as to the identity of this ram, 
The ram with two horns is the Medo-Persian Empire. The empire begins dominated by the Medes, and then it grows in strength and power through the agency of Persia. One was higher than the other. In other words, in his vision, the lower one that came up last grew and continued to grow and as it continued to grow it surpassed the first horn in strength and power that's what it means when it says that the higher came up last and this is exactly what happened in history cyrus the second who's called the great began his reign in 559 bc as a vassal or a loyal subject of the medes now you've got to understand when daniel is having this vision and relating the vision he knows that there's a person named Cyrus he knows that he's a loyal subject of the Medes the Babylonian Empire is still in power in 550 BC Cyrus rebels defeats the Median king Astagius creating a single Medo-Persian empire. Those of you who are familiar with this book and with the unfolding of history understand that this king is going to continue for another 12 years when Daniel is in Babylon. But by 546 BC, the Persian king is going to gain control of both kingdoms. He is going to conquer Lydia to the west. In 539 BC, he's going to conquer Babylon, expanding north and then expanding west into Greece and then expanding both, both um, west and north to Syria and then to the Levant. The Levant is the, is the land bridge that connects Anatolia, which is Turkey, to Egypt in the south. And so he is going to cover and continue to expand the ministry, his, his kingdom. And so what, what Daniel is predicting, that the Medo-Persian Empire will succeed as long as it continues to push east and west and north and south. And that's exactly what happened in history. In verse 4, it says, I saw the ram pushing westward towards Turkey northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Scholars argue that perhaps in terms of sheer occupation, Persia is undoubtedly one of the greatest kingdoms that have ever existed. Some suggest that they've pushed all the way east towards the Pacific Ocean. The Medo-Persian Empire expands, and according to the prophecy, it's irresistible. And so we're given this very brief sketch of the Persian Empire, but I'll have more to say about this as we continue our study in this eighth chapter. But I want to draw your attention to this strange goat with one horn. It says in verse 5, and as I was considering suddenly a male goat, a billy goat, if you will, came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. 
He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable horns came up toward the four winds of heaven. In this passage of scripture, what was future to Daniel is history to us. We happen to know that the billy goat or male goat represents the Greek empire in verse 5. We're told that the goat would come from the west. The prophecy adds, without touching the ground, which speaks of the empire's movement, that it is so quick as to defy gravity. This notable horn is Alexander the Great. We know a great deal about him. His father was named Philip. We also know that Philip was the most, the, the richest man in the whole world, and he decided that he would take his earnings, and hire the most intelligent person in the world to homeschool his son. As a matter of fact, the person that he hired was named Aristotle. You'll remember that Aristotle was tutored by a man named Plato, who was tutored by a man named Socrates. In the 4th century BC, when Socrates was a very young man, it was in the final stages of multiple Persian empire encroachments. It was the tyranny of Persia versus the democracy of this Macedonian peninsula that was going to determine the fate of civilization for the entire future. And so Daniel sees in advance hundreds of years, and I'll, I'll have more to say about this. In brief, Alexander rises in power, he forges an army of some 35,000 soldiers across the Aegean Peninsula. In the prophecy, the goat initiates the attack in verses 6 and 7. And this is exactly what happened. Persia would come in earlier centuries and make encroachment, but after almost 150 years, there's this burning hatred and animosity between the Greeks and the Persians. Wilmington puts it this way. He says, quote, This prophecy of the ram and the goat places a microscope under the conflict between the second and third world empires. That's Persia and Greece. In the struggle of East and West, of Orient and Occident, of Asia and Europe, historical drawings have been discovered which depict a one-horned goat as the symbol for the ancient Greek armies. It's true. I happen to have the proof right in my pocket. Because when they made coins of Alexander the Great, they put a single horn on his head, the horn of Ammon. This coin is a lifetime representation of Alexander the Great, which was minted in about 330 B.C., as a matter of fact, the Persian armies and the empire of Persia, Darius and his successors would have on their breastplate a gigantic ram's 
head. And so the armies that conflicted one with the, the, the other, the leader, he's wearing a breastplate of a ram. The other leader is wearing the, the breastplate of a goat. And by the way, aegis means goat in the Greek language. The Aegean Sea, which separates the Persians from the Greeks, it's the goat sea. Aegea is the capital of Alexander's home in Macedonia. It says he was moved with rage against him and attacked the ram and broke his two horns. The growing animosity between the Persians and the Greeks came to a head in 492 and 490 BC and 480 and 479 BC in some of the most famous battles that have ever been fought and they stopped the Persians in their tracks, turned them back, but the growing animosity that burned in Alexander's heart continued to grow. This is hundreds of years after the prophecy. And the emphasis seems to lie in the conquest of the ram, the breaking of its horn, the emergence of four horns, and then the subsequent emergence of another little horn in verses 9 through 14, which is all going to play an important role in Israel's unfolding history. You're going to note that the large horn is broken in verse 8, which seems to be a reference to Alexander's death. I'll have more to talk about this, but Alexander will cross the Hellespont. He will lay siege to Tyre for months. He will cross the land bridge and march into Jerusalem where the high priest in Jerusalem will take the scroll of Daniel and Open it to the 8th chapter, which we're reading this morning. He'll point to this verse, and he'll say, this prophecy is about you. Written hundreds of years in advance. Because of that, Alexander spares the city. He continues to march towards Alexandria. He subdues Egypt. He marches west into Babylon. He continues to go to India. He subdues the whole earth. And at the age of 32, he returns to Babylon where he falls on his knees and he begins to weep because there's no more worlds to conquer. And that night, he got drunk. And he drank. And he drank. And he caught pneumonia. And he started to die. He's surrounded by four generals. His two heirs by birth are already in Macedonia. And the generals plead with Alexander and say, Whom shall we give the kingdom to? And he says, Give it to the strong. And he dies. And they encase his body in beeswax. And then they haul his body from Babylon to the northern part of Alexandria where Ptolemy builds a city in his honor called Alexandria. And it's there that his body will lay in state and the largest library in the known world will be built. And so in the years that followed Alexander's death, the kingdom is divided in four. Ptolemy occupies the territory to the south, which is Egypt and North Africa, and, and at times the Levant. Seleucus 
has the eastern section of Syria, Cassander, the western division of Greece, Lysimachus, the northern area that includes Asia Minor, and literally the prophecy becomes literally true. Don't you find that amazing? And some people might say, no, it can't be. Daniel had to have been written centuries later, but we know that that's an absolute lie. You know how we know? Because we have strong evidence that the manuscript of Daniel exists in the third century BC when the high priest in Israel brings it and shows it to Alexander the Great. And I happen to know that Ptolemy's successor translates the book of Daniel in the second century BC into a book that is known among scholars who are agnostic and atheistic and unbelieving The manuscript of Daniel exists in the second century BC in the form of the Septuagint. The evidence is overwhelming that everything that the Bible says about the past is true. And everything it says about the future is true. And everything it says about you is true. And so when the next person says to you, how do I know this is true? You need to open up your Bible and say, well, predictive prophecy. And now the sinister creature that defiles the temple. Look what it says between verses 9 and 12. And out of one of them, these four kingdoms, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south and then toward the east. And then towards the glorious land is not in the original language, but clearly it's a reference to Eretz, Israel. The glorious land is here a picture of Israel. In other words, remember what I've said to you earlier, that the, that the unfolding of this prophecy is in relationship to the Jew and the Jewish people. And so now we're given that hint and it grew up to the host of heaven and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down because of transgression. An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and he cast truth to the ground. Underline that. He did all this. And prospered. So we're left wondering, okay, here's another little horn. In chapter 7, there was a little horn, but he comes out of the final empire of Rome. Here we have another little horn, which comes out of the empire of Greece. Later, the angel Gabriel will make known the meaning of the vision, which we will talk about when we return in, in verse 16. Clearly, this little horn is not the horn of chapter 7. The little horn in chapter 7, like I said, emerges from the Roman Empire. This one comes from one of the four horns that emerge from the Greek Empire. But which one? Because we know about the descendants of Ptolemy. We know about the descendants of Cassander and Lysimachus. But we also know about the the descendants of Seleucus, or what's called the Seleucid Empire. And so this little horn emerges from one of the horns. And when the horn is broken, one of the notable ones 
we're given a clue, it grows exceedingly toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land in verse 9. Again, after the death of Alexander, the empire is divided. And now the focus will become on one of those generals in particular, Seleucus, or the Seleucid Empire. And these empires, again, are always in relationship to Israel. God's plan, God's purpose, God's Holy Spirit, as he sees the unfolding of human kingdoms, is in proportion to their treatment of that place and those people. And so the prophecy shifts as God's revelation focuses on his plan, his purpose, his prophetic dealings. Not only for the Jewish people, but for the coming Messiah. And we're given a glimpse of Israel's immediate future. How Persia will become the dominant world empire. How Greece will become the dominant world empire. And the majority of conservative scholars see this representation as Antiochus Epiphanes IV. How do we know? He's a Greek. He's a Syrian. He's the son of Antiochus the Great. He's the seventh in succession of the Seleucid dynasty. He continues to be the king from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C. He will rule from his father's capital, Antioch. Antiochus comes to power and he hates the Jews. And he hates their God, and he hates their practices. In brief, he will order the Jewish people to cease and desist the practice of circumcision. He'll order the sacred writings to be destroyed. He will mock the Levitical offerings. He'll eventually offer a gigantic sow, a pig. He'll enter the rebuilt temple, and he will kill this pig, and he will scatter its, then he will boil it, and scatter the broth and smear it throughout the sanctuary and he himself calls himself the Lord the light God with us you know how I know because I have his coin in my pocket (laughs) this coin dates from 175 to 164 BC in the Greek language I can read it clear as day it's it's powerful. It says Basilion. And then it says Ephiphanes. That means I'm the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the light that's with you. He calls himself the light of the world and the Lord of light. Epiphanes. His Jewish subjects call him Epimanes. It's a play on words. In the Greek language, it means the madman. Sources cite him killing and enslaving over 100,000 Jewish people. He will literally kill 50,000. His, his cruel and diabolical exploits are recorded in the book of Maccabees. When he outlaws circumcision, there are a group of recalcitrant 
recalcitrant Jews who refuse, who refuse to give in. One lady who has seven sons gives birth to her seventh son. And as she's giving birth to the son, she elects to circumcise the child. But before she can do that, he has the child literally removed from her belly, takes the umbilical cord, wraps it around her neck. She's wearing her newborn baby like a necklace. And then he proceeds to kill the children from the oldest to the youngest. And something stirs inside of the heart of Judas Maccabeus. And he says, enough. And they revolt. And it's called the Maccabean Revolt. It's this revolt that will initiate what the Jewish people to this very day have come to call Hanukkah. Some have suggested that he was literally possessed by Satan. Others that, that in, the, in the possession pictures, he seems like a future antichrist who will once again go into a future temple at a future time. Luther believed this chapter applied to Antiochus and the antichrist. Jerome said of the Jews of his time that they looked at this prophecy as something that would happen in the past and would happen in the future. Daniel tells us the little horn grows up to the host of heaven in verse 10. The King James Version reads, and it casts down some of the host of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them in verse 10. Who are these stars? Who are these stars? Are they supernatural beings? Are they angels? Ron Rhodes believes it's a reference to the Jewish people. He argues that the scripture often describes the Jewish people as stars. He says, quote, for example, you'll recall Joseph's dream. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. The sun, the moon, the 11 stars, they were bowing down to me. That, remember what I've said to you as we've been going through our study in the book of Daniel. The symbol can never mean what it never meant. But it almost certainly might mean what it's always meant. In the book of Genesis, the 12 tribes are the 12 stars. And so it could very well be that Antiochus's trampling of the host of the stars refers to this vicious, wicked persecution. History reveals that Antiochus brutally persecutes the Jewish people from 170 to 164 BC. And we're given more information. And by the way, there's another... Um, Reference to stars, Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, it just occurs to me again. We encounter this metaphorical description of Israel in the book of Revelation as a woman. Remember, she's giving birth. Likewise, she has a crown of 12 stars. And the 12 stars represent the 12 tribes or the children of Israel. And again, we're given more information in verse 12. He will be given an army. He will cause the sacrifice and the service in the temple to cease. And look at that strange phrase. He will cast truth down to the ground. What in the world does that mean? Almost certainly it means he opposes the revelation of God. He opposes what God has said. The truth about the past, about the future.
about the Jewish people. Here's one of the things that we know for absolute certain that Antiochus Epiphanes did. When he looted the temple, he took all of the scrolls, most certainly the Tanakh, which is the first five books of the Bible, and he burned them. Every single copy of the sacred scripture he decided to burn in a misguided attempt to silence the revelation of God. And I want you to think about that for just a minute. Because there is a demonic, a satanic attack on this book. The temple has to be rebuilt because the temple sacrifice will resume. When Daniel receives the vision of the temple being destroyed for a long time and the sacrifices cease, you read that and you read what it says. But Daniel must have understood that the temple was destroyed, but that this temple must be rebuilt. And by the way, Ezra and then Nehemiah will now devote itself to the unfolding revelation that the Jews have to return to Israel and that the temple must be rebuilt because the Bible is true and the testimony is true. The revelation that he gives and the prophecy that he gives, it is true. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25, we discover the word of the Lord remains forever. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says, the grass wither, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Satan's determined plan remains to make you ignorant of God's word so that you will be ignorant of God's will. Because if Satan is unable to deprive you of God's word, he'll make you impatient with God's will. You'll be tested to act in a way that is inconsistent with his will. In verse 13 and 14, it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand. 300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. When you read that, you may not understand what you're reading. It means that for 2,300 days, this wicked, evil person will be given opportunity to inflict unbelievable harm to God's people. But it will come to an end. And God's people will survive. You know why this is important to you? It's because of that pain. It's because of that setback. It's because of the failure and the disappointment. It's because of what seems like your whole world falling apart, coming apart at the seams, and you wonder, will it ever end? Will there ever be a respite? Will there ever be a time when God's plan and God's purpose and God's hope will come to fruition? 
And the answer is yes. By the way, the persecution of Antiochus will last from September 6th, 171 BC to December 25th, 165-4 BC after 1,000, then 2,000, then 300 days. And after Antiochus, the Jews will celebrate the cleansing of their holy placed in a, in a memorial that's been from, from that time forward called the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah or the celebration of Hanukkah. Some of you may have Jewish friends and you had no idea. But you need to be able to tell your Jewish friends everything that the Bible says about the past is true. Everything that the Bible says about the future is true. And everything that the Bible says about you is true. Next week, Savior is born. After that, I'm going to finish this eighth chapter of Daniel, the Lord willing. Do me a favor. Invite some people to church next week. You don't have to invite them for two weeks. You might say, no, two weeks from now, it's going to be way too heavy for you. And then they'll go, I want to go. Yeah, use reverse psychology. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at this remarkable document and the things that it says about the past, Lord, I pray that it will stir us up as we think about the future and as we think about what God's word has said about our future. And here's what we know for certain. Jesus is going to come back. Here's what we know for certain, that the powers of evil and wickedness and the Antichrist will be confronted by our Savior and will be ultimately destroyed. But in the meantime, there might be some days of pain. There might be some days of sorrow. There might be some days of depression and discomfort. But Lord, we have the hope that one day it will be the last day. Lord, we know that darkness comes, but that joy comes in the morning. And so Lord, we give you our hearts as we hold out hope that everything you've said is true. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead, guys. Yeah.